One of the words that kept really striking people and talking about awe was wandering, as opposed to always being efficient and goal-driven. And I think we've been in a hyper-goal-driven, algorithmic, you know, efficiency era, and, and we need to wander to find the imagination and to find wisdom. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next half an hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We'll discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. I am incredibly excited to welcome back uh, a returning guest, first time that we have ever invited a guest back. That's not because the other guests were terribly behaved or anything but sometimes you just connect with the guests and you say this conversation is not finished so um i doubt we'll get it finished today either but i'm really excited to be welcoming back uh daka keltner daka is a professor of psychology at the university of california berkeley and director of the greater good science center he is author of several books including the power paradox born to be good and most recently or the new science of everyday wonder and how it can transform your life Welcome back to the show, Dakar. I'm honored to be uh, back again, Charles. Thank you. And thank you, Igor. So, Dakar, we had you on the show before. And I'm wondering, um, since you started sort of put together the new book on awe, yeah. uh, um, that's, uh, you were sort of like starting thinking about that back then uh-huh. um, when we had you on, your show, on the show. And uh, now the book is finished. Is there anything that you changed your mind on about this topic or anything else since the last time we spoke? Hmm, about awe. Um, yeah, uh, a lot of things. Um, the, um, the first thing that really um, emerged in the conversations about awe, which, you know, been five months and continuing, uh, is... Um, you know, it's interesting when you have conversations about something you've studied for 20 years and you convey the findings and the theories and the cultural histories, but, but concepts kind of keep returning to you um, right. that, that you're like, ah, this is what the culture is interested in. And I would say one is uh, moral beauty. You know, it's one of the sources of mm-hmm. awe. Caught me off guard. I didn't realize that we feel so much awe about our fellow human beings, their courage and sacrifice. And, and that just... You know, I think it is such a, a, a both a counter uh, and then an antidote to the times of, you know, posting envious pictures on Instagram and mm-hmm. getting lost in conspiracy theories and, you know, and the, and the cynicism. And so that was one. It was like, ah, oh, this this feels poorly understood and something we need. Right. Um, and I think that the um, the other thing that that really emerged um that's kind of a meta theme about awe and in some sense makes contact with your thinking about wisdom is is that it, it contained within awe is this higher order you know you write about meta awareness being critical to wisdom awe right. has that built into it it's just like oh wait a minute i'm just a small thing that's part of uh-huh. This group or this this culture or this neighborhood or this ecosystem or this piece of music, and how hungry people are for connecting to lar- things larger than the self. You know, mm-hmm. uh, just our our young people are lost in their self- smartphones. Um, older people feel lonely and are thinking too much about the self. And awe, like wisdom, awe has as has a layer of wisdom built into it, which is this 
meta awareness, this higher order, like thinking about what my life amounts to or who I am. And Mm so those two themes just kept coming back to the conversations and I didn't really anticipate them at all. I often think about this idea that, you know, religious practices, whether you agree with the content or of the ideologies, often the practices themselves, you know, were recognizing something important about humanity. And as there's been the decline of religion, are we missing some of the benefits of those practices? You know, so that seems to be, you know, speaking to me from what you're saying. Um, does that ring a bell at all? Does that resonate? Well, you know, it was funny. Um, you know, I've been, I've talked to tens of thousands of people about this book and, and, you know, the spirituality and religion are vessels of awe. They, it's where we go find awe and reflect right. upon its meaning. And, and they do a very good job of this higher order awareness of self in context. That's part of wisdom. They give us origin stories about the origin of the universe or life or consciousness. They situate us in these ceremonies that link us up with other people. And, you know, it's interesting that, uh, and, you know, Igor may have comments on this, but um, a lot of these very basic processes like moving in unison, singing in unison, thinking about your your mm. spirit within a larger cosmogony or uh, cosmology, you know, they are about higher order awareness of, of self. And it's part of the same absence in our culture that uh, we don't have a language to talk about the soul, even though most people feel like they kind of have a soul, something essential to them. We don't have a language to talk about spirit, even though 81% of Americans believe in it. And wisdom and awe are, are hovering nearby as ways to introduce those topics. And there's a real, it's dynamic. And I didn't, you know, to Igor's question, you know, I'm not a religious person. I'm, I'm kind of a spiritual, maybe not a spiritual person. I don't know, you know. But wow, these conversations uh, brought it up a lot. And so, you know, our role as social scientists is to say, well, you know, we used to think of of the Buddha or Confucius or Lao Tzu or uh, some indigenous, you know, practitioner as wise. And so what is that? How do I can find that? How can I find that? So and same with all. Uh, how can I find this emotion that allows me to feel a sense of transcendence or supernatural? Mm-hmm. Well, you have, uh, you've outlined up the structure of this conversation perfectly. We're going to speak about wisdom, then we're going to speak about awe. So, like, we're going to cover it. Um, so let's, let's, um, get into wisdom first. So, um, we have, you know, lots of people come on the show. Everyone has, you know, different ideas, different perspectives. So we like to kick off by just, um, giving people an opportunity to say, you know, wisdom can be many things, but what does it mean to you? And, and in particular, when you're thinking about that, like, is there anything, about wisdom that you think may be overlooked or perhaps counterintuitive? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I, the, the wisdom sciences consensual definition, if I, you know, and I probably get parts of this wrong, of like it involves this kind of sense of emotional grounding where you're aware of other people's interests in your own. And then this metacognitive practice of being aware of your mind. Um, you know, I've taught, happiness and emotion for 30 years, in particular emotion, and how I would approach wisdom as an emotion scientist very much is similar to the pillars you guys identified, but, but it is, and it's really grounded in Aristotle, which is we have this rich array of emotions of, say, 20 emotions that now the emotion science field works on. And 
like John Hyde has argued and others that we've argued, they have a lot of wisdom in them. You know, they tell us about justice and harm and need uh, and fairness and, and self and standing in society, you know, emotions like anger and compassion and the like. And then, you know, Aristotle has this idea and it's a metacognitive principle of like, what is the good life? It's really, or, or virtue. It is having the emotions to the right degree in the right way, toward the right people in the right place. And that feels like meta-awareness of your passions or more emotions, right? Oh, I'm feeling angry. And yeah, it's about unfair pay and that's okay. Uh, and I will protest versus I'm angry at some guy who inadvertently, you know, signaled in one direction and cut in front of me on the highway. Um, so I feel like wisdom in the emotion space is your, it's your structural elements, which is, you have this grounding in your emotions, like, hey, I'm feeling compassion, I'm tearing up, or awe. But then it has this awareness that, that the prefrontal cortex does of like, what's the context here? Am I shouting at a young child? That probably is inappropriate, right? And it gives you that, that, that sort of situating of the emotion. So that's what I would, you know, when I teach emotion, I say, if you can do that, you're on your way to a good life, you know, because you'll be guided in the right way by great emotions like compassion and awe you'll use to the right degree the emotions like anger um and and so your that work was really useful in thinking about wisdom and emotion mm. and so emotions have been ignored uh, well igor would know this better but yeah you know, they they need a more explicit treatment i think in the science of wisdom you you mentioned there about um emotions kind of uh perhaps guiding, you know, we get a sense of unfairness uh, from our emotion, you will feel, will respond with anger, but then obviously you need to temper that with some sort of looking at the context. Um, do, you, do you think um, wisdom is inherently, you know, has a moral component to it, or, or can you separate out those two uh, frameworks? Yeah, you know, that is a, a terrific question. And I was, I was actually kind of thinking about that, you know, walking around before this mm -hmm. podcast. Um, I think if you, I think if you stick with your definition, you know, and Igor can chime in here, Igor, uh, you know, I have a grounding in this feeling of like, this is the right balance of self and other interests. And then I'm aware of my mental states and cognitive processes. Um, that grounding in the sense of self and other is inherently moral, right? You're really getting to issues of harm and fairness. Uh, but I would problematize that a bit and say, you know, if, if you are in an inherently uh, violent place, you know, you're in the midst of, uh, you know, you're in the drug cartels, you know, or you're mm -hmm. in a really violent prison or you are, um, you know, you're in a genocide. There are people who have these qualities of wisdom of like, you know, being aware of the context, knowing what our biases are, understanding things, having a grounding of my sense of self, but it's just all about self-preservation. And so that becomes amoral or immoral, but still people practice a bit of wisdom. Um, so I don't know if you guys would agree with that analysis, but I think on balance, most of the time, wisdom mm -hmm. is very intertwined and overlapping with morality. But counterexamples can come to mind. So here's another very tricky question, Doctor. <laughs> oh, no. So if you were to pick, uh, we, all, we only have those. Uh, if you had to pick one thing 
And this is a real, tr- it's almost a trick question, actually. If you had to pick one thing <laughs> Don't tell people him could do, <laughs> uh, one thing you could do to help people make wiser decisions. So from your perspective, what would you choose? Oh, man. Um, I, I, you know, it's so interesting you asked that question, Igor, because over time, I, you know, I have evolved in my thinking about this. And, you know, it used to be, I would be, I would align with Karen Armstrong, the religious historian and contemplative teachers and just say, like, just practice compassion, you know, right. And, and that'll get you a long way to orient to need and suffering and take action and guided by all we've learned about compassion can make the same case for awe, you know, but, um, um, I, uh, <laughs> I think, um, I've been really interested in, um, the, uh, reverence is sort of a kind of a meta process, a meta feeling of like, all things have some sort of sacred standing and just to be guided by that. Um, and then, you know, in part reading the wisdom science, in part thinking about awe, in part thinking about aesthetics as well, which is often under appreciated in the cycle. I, the imagination, you know, and I, my mom sent me this quote by Percy Shelley in defense of poetry, where he said the great secret of morals uh, and love is love. And the ability to imagine beyond yourself, right? And so mm-hmm. that's your meta process. And I think there, there's something deeply true and powerful about shifting to the, the imagination, perspective taking, like, you know, Ethan Cross, Azamaiduk study. Somewhere in that space yeah. is the magic ingredient. It's sometimes very hard to do, especially yeah. when you're in the heat of the moment. Yeah, and, and you know, and also it, it probably isn't quite as vulnerable to the excesses of too much awe, which does a lot of good in the world, but can get you into trouble, mm-hmm. or compassion. So so I'd put it on the imagination. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I'm going to ask a, uh, I suppose, more like an organizational kind of question. You, you know, sure. you, you, you folks um, are aware, obviously, of uh, how our behavior is uh, a function to a certain degree of the context we find ourselves in. Um, so if we were thinking about changing the sort of context that of society, you know, the, the structure, the way it's structured in it, how could we change that to lead to uh, more wise behavior? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I, um, you know, get asked that question a lot, you know, cause I teach human happiness and mm. on to, People are like, man, you know, depression's up, anxiety's up, mm. what gives? How do we change things? And that's a hard question. And so, you know, you, of course, you'd want to wave a magic wand and economic inequality would disappear, racism would disappear, sexism. It wouldn't be the colonization of indigenous peoples, you know, but that's not mm. what social mm. scientists have much say in. Um, so I'll say a couple of things. And, you know, one is, um, is uh, I feel one of the words that kept really striking people and talking about awe was wandering as opposed to always being efficient and goal-driven. Mm-hmm. And I think we've been in a hyper-goal-driven, algorithmic you know, efficiency 
era and and we need to wander to find the imagination and to find wisdom you know we need surprises and novelty and unexpected unexpected things i think we need you know it's interesting i think we really need to challenge the the sense of time that has emerged in our society of like mm-hmm. always maximizing our time always doing more trying to do things faster i think those work against um, the, the practice of wisdom or the development of wisdom. They don't allow for abstract thought or the like. And then obviously you could think about our physical environment. And I'm always wondering, like, you know, it was, you know, no one finds awe on a smartphone for the most part because they are small and, you know, narrow and, you know, algorithm driven. And so get away from your screens and, and get outdoors. You know, I think that the outdoors I'm with. Ralph Waldo Emerson and indigenous scholars like Dr. Yuria Salidwin, that when we feel we are in relation to nature, be it the sky or the spring or gardening or hiking, whatever, the, the best operations of the mind, i.e. wisdom, arise. So, so that's what I would say. Mm. That's really interesting talking about wandering. I, um, I didn't know that I was preparing for this conversation. I've been going outside and I've just been walking around the block and I've just been like, completely overweight overwhelmed by how beautiful it is and also interestingly it i didn't slow down so i could see things it was once i started to look for things i had to slow down to just be able to take it in so like i was yes i wasn't forcing myself to slow down i was like if i'm gonna soak in and drink up all the things that are around me i i'm gonna have to go at a snail's pace um but it's just an extraordinary experience it's just going around the block wow I, what a terrific recommendation. And, you know, that we did this all walk study, which had one approach to looking with walking and it really is oriented towards looking, which is mm. look at small things and then pan out to vast mm. things, mm. really good effects of the all walk. But it is, you know, the, this world we're in of screens and, and then smart self, you know, smartphones, mm. it's not, it's an impoverished form of looking. Uh, and is impoverished in many ways, and that may be a, a good gateway. So, excellent idea, Charles. I'm going to get the book and go out looking. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> All right, we are going to we're going to dive now into all proper. Um, but uh, so I'm going to hand over to Igor to kick us off with the first all based question. Yeah. So. Oh, we should probably remind the readers and listeners, the readers of your book and listeners here, what it is yeah. and uh, why you're excited studying. We sort of talk about it right now, but we, I don't think we provided a real definition. So maybe we'll, we should start there. Yeah, that's really important, especially with this emotion, because it's so ineffable and squirrely and right. resist, you know, rational thinking and analysis. So, you know, uh, Grounded in a lot of different tra- writing traditions, from spiritual writings to environmental writings to, you know, music, psychedelic writings. Uh, John Haidt and I defined awe as an emotion. So it's a brief mm-hmm. state that you feel when you encounter things that are vast or beyond your frame of reference that you don't understand or that are mm-hmm. mysterious. Um, and then, you know, the science adds some texture to that, you know, emotions are always multi-level phenomena. So in your mind, when you're feeling awe, you feel humble and small, uh, and you're part of something large in your body, you'll tear up, you'll get 
the goosebumps, your, your throat may tighten up, you may, uh, your heart may feel warm. Um, and, and then it has what William James called saintly tendencies of just like, you're just, you want to do good, you know? So, so it is this emotion we feel with these sensations and thoughts when we encounter vast mysteries. Okay. So I want to clarify maybe for some listeners who maybe are in the same boat as I was in February of last year. So it's sometime past midnight and I can't sleep and I'm looking on my computer and constantly refreshing the social media, which I shouldn't do as we already established uh, because uh, my home country where I was born is under attack. And Mm. I see for the first time ever rockets Mm. hitting Kiev and, uh, you know, buildings uh, in downtown being attacked, uh, like as if it is, uh, you know, a war zone uh, somewhere in Africa or in Afghanistan. And I do feel the sense of vastness. Yeah. I also feel absolute lack of control yeah. and almost like some kind of powerlessness in yeah. that moment. It's not a pleasant feeling for me, though. Is that no. awe or is that something else? It's, I mean, what a, incre- first of all, I'm sorry about history harming your, your home country, Igor. Um, you know, that, that question took us a long time to answer. It's this deep question of awe versus horror or terror. Um, right. what, what's the distinction? And, and a lot of our stories of awe that we gathered from 26 countries were like that. You know, we had veterans talking about, you know, one veteran, Stacey Bear, like I was, I was in Iraq and this giant sandstorm mm-hmm. came over our base and, you mm-hmm. know, mortar rockets were flying and it was dangerous, but also awe inspiring. I remember mm-hmm. another story coming in from China, this young woman who watched a flood destroy her village, you know, and she, she was there looking at the power and the vastness of the waters and then, you know, couldn't understand how it was just washing away these homes. And, and the really key distinction, and it does a lot, of, and we've really gotten this empirically, is the minute you add threat and peril mm-hmm. into your subjective appraisal of the, of the, of the context or stimulus, then you're, you're in the horror, terror, fear world. Mm-hmm. Awe doesn't have that sense of threat or peril. So, you know, often in combat, people, you know, you think about some of the scenes from um, Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. where war looks almost beautiful and awesome, because you forget that people are dying, right? And you just see the the scene, but then the minute you're reminded that there's peril, death, destruction, you move to awe, I mean, to horror and terror, with horror being more about physical carnage and 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 then terror being about, you know, the death of you and, and uh, the end of your existence. So one thing to push back here, though, again, like to clarify it a little bit more, yeah. um, in some languages, including in Ukrainian, Russian, and, and yeah. German, um, when you say awe and you try to trans- translate it, um, for instance, in German, you have Erfurcht, which the second part of it is literally literal translation of that is just fear. Yeah. So there is that fear. So how do we go? Is, is that, how's that different from terror? Or is it just like 
this is just a translation and a leftover that people are not using anymore as there's some kind of cultural evolution of that. And yeah. that is sort of something in the past and not how people talk about or in the present. Exactly. And thank you for your nuanced analysis, right? That, uh, and, and, and also in English, which emerges out of Old English and Norse, where 8th, ninth centuries, where the word all came out of these other related const, uh, uh, terms that meant fear, dread, horror, you know, vastness. Um, yeah, you know, I'm with Edmund Burke, the great Irish philosopher, one of the great writers on awe, who said, you know, words often don't exactly correspond to feeling. And, and psychologists have made, I think, a pretty significant right. mistake in thinking that the words we use to report on our feelings capture the subjective feeling. And they, mm-hmm. they do, but there are other things going on, like unconscious processes, visceral processes, and the like. And, and what we have in the awe science is a good example of that, which is that three-quarters of experiences of awe that we've studied around the world feel good, you know, even though the connotations of the word awe have fear and dread in it. And I think you're, I think, you know, you're exactly right, Igor, which is there's been this cultural evolution of the meaning of the word. In the 8th, ninth century, you know, the, the world was violent and people lived short lives and awe was horrifying. And now it's different and maybe it'll change back, you know. So um, we always, this is why we need psychological science. Dak, I'm really keen to ask you this next question. Sure. I'm, I imagine <laughs> it's something that uh, as you've been touring the world, people are like, they ask this. So let's bring this to our listeners. They, they've read your book or they're listening to the podcast. They're like, this sounds fantastic or wonderful. I'm on board. Um, but I don't live, you know, anywhere where I can see a beautiful starry sky or the Grand Canyon. Um, how can people, um, tap into this kind of experience just in the neighborhood? I mean, we touched yeah. on it a little bit, but like if we could dig into that a little bit, what could people go and do this afternoon or tomorrow morning, which could, access some of the, the the bounty that is available here yeah thank you charles because you know we do live in you know i mean it's a tough time right now in terms you know with the crises of different kinds and mental health issues mm. and um and you know and in fact we have just published a paper uh, authored by maria monroy as first author where we we worked with uh and i have two answers to this you know we worked with um, hospital systems during the pandemic. You know, all hell was breaking loose. People were dying. In the United States, 30% understaffed in terms of nurses. It was just chaos. And the, the people delivering healthcare were fried uh, and really suffering high levels of depression. And so the first piece that we did, and this grows out of the All Walk study that I referred to, which is there is an awe mindset, right, of pausing, putting down your devices, um, taking some deep breaths, and just taking stock of what's in front of you and imagining. And I like the kind of zeroing in on details and then panning out and thinking about the broader context of, of you or what you're seeing. You know, So if you're outside, you zero in and look at a part of a tree, and then you pan out and look at the full tree. You know, I'm looking at this mug that my daughter made for me, and then I pan out and think about all the things that went into that. So, so that's a mindset of pausing, putting away your devices, you know, just taking stock of the small and the vast that's around you. 
And, you know, in this study, just getting people to do that a minute or two a day and then sort of applying that mindset to the context they're in actually led to reductions in depression and anxiety and increases in well-being in our healthcare providers over 20 days. So, so that works. And the second thing, you know, in the book, I write about eight wonders, uh, which are really easy ways to find awe. You know, moral beauty. Think about somebody who changed your life, who inspired you. Just write for a couple of minutes about that. Nature. Go outside and, you know, take in the scents and the light and the sounds. If you, if where, wherever you are, you know, if you're in an urban setting, um, try to get to a garden. Uh, collective effervescence. Think about ways to move with people to move in unison at a game. Uh, visual design, look at a piece of art, music, listen to a piece of music more intentionally. Like, Hey, why did I pick a piece of music that brought you tears at some point in your life? Listen to it mm-hmm. three minutes and then think about why is that so poignant to you? You know, um, spiritual practice and then big ideas and life and death. Um, the final two wonders, big ideas, just take a moment to read a little bit on you know, infinity or free markets or evolution, whatever the big idea is. Mm. And then it's interesting, and this will be challenging, which is the life cycle. And, you know, I was just in Bhutan five months ago, six months ago, and there they teach their kids how to look at life cycles of everything. Think of your friend being young and adolescent and middle-aged and then passing away. And you get this sense of, of metacognition, Igor, right? Like each life is in a broader, um, uh, trajectory or, or narrative. So, yeah, I think those wonders and then an awe mindset and then three to five minutes a day will will do a lot of good work for you. Mm, that's really practical. I'm, I'm kind of interested. Did Do you, I imagine like lots of things, certain people find it easier, have sort of predispositions to get yeah. into that kind of state? Is there a big variation in that? Is it something that's accessible to everyone or, or what's the what's it looking like on that? Yeah. Front? Well, it's fascinating, which is, you know, um, I, you know, there are, we have a measure of dispositional awe. There are all these awe prone people. Mm. Um, they, <laughs> I get emails from them. <laughs> <laughs> I have this guy who's like, I can't believe I read your book. Anesthesiology. He's an anesthesiologist. It's like, right. it's all about awe. You know, <laughs> I've given your book to all my patients and my interns, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and he's an enthusiast, but it is, there's individual variation, but I will say, and this is really striking, uh, and this was a big surprise, which is it's one of the easiest emotions to find. You know, it, you, if you look at some, if you're lucky enough to see some nice nature, listen to a moving piece of music, uh, you know, hear a moving speech of someone you really care about, see children perform that you, whom you know, music or drama what you know go to a great sporting event that you love you're going to feel awe there's a very good chance it's an accessible emotion unlike other emotions which are ironically a little bit harder to find you know in their pure form like this so so it's it's there for us to find and and not as difficult as you might imagine i was (laughs) i was thinking about um uh you know sometimes sort of a cheesy romantic comedy um, they'll be, and I will become emotional in it and I'll be like, oh, yeah. I will feel a sort of strange blend of like, I'll lean into it, but then I'll, I'm also aware that this was designed 
in a boardroom somewhere for me to have this emotional response. And then I feel a little bit like, oh, are they, are they making money off my, you know, uh, or proneness, you know? So, uh, is that like all being used against us? <laughs> well, I worry about this and, you know, I, I'm in Berkeley, so I'm allowed to say this, you know, watch out for capitalism or, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> we use, I mean, you know, there are misuses of every human mm. virtue. <laughs> mm. Right, right. And that's just what, you know, Machiavellian leaders and, and, you know, hyper capitalists do. And, and so, yeah, you know, mm. there are, um, misuses of awe in terms of, um, you know, uh, you know, fancy cars evoking awe and, mm. and Instagram accounts evoking awe that make other people feel ashamed and, religious figures and, you know, televangelists, you could go on. Back to the science though. So, and this yeah. is from, you know, I, I also teach research methods and when I want to introduce the concept like awe to eager students, um, what are the challenges or pitfalls of studying awe as a scientific phenomenon? Oh my God. You know, so, I mean, you, t- you take, um, I, I think interestingly enough, we, you know, there are a lot of labs working on this now in different parts of the world. And, you know, and right. when you think about showing incredible nature imagery or slow motion videos or moving speeches or, or moral beauty, you know, um, and just the power of, of, me, of film. Um, and then you add to that um, what I've done in the lab a lot of and others is like get people out near an awe context, you know, be it we've had in our studies, people on river rafting or standing mm. next to the, a model of a T-Rex skeleton or being around big trees or looking at sunsets so, and music, right? So there's a lot of pretty strong ways to evoke awe. So I feel good about that. Right. Um, it gets really hard, Igor, to, and this traces back to your earlier question, how do we really know it's awe versus beauty versus horror or terror or fear? And, you know, you can get there a little with self-reports, but that's tricky. Yeah. Um, so, so the awe science is doing well, and we have individual difference measures. The, the real challenges, in some sense, are, uh, one is, um, you know, people talk a lot about the duration of awe effects. Like, oh, my God, I had a psychedelic experience, and it was all awe. Changed my life. Right. Yeah. Well, how do we know, you know? And you being trained at Michigan and, you know, all the skepticism of those claims, you, you know, maybe it doesn't. And we don't, we just don't know. Um, I get worried, you know, it's funny, like a lot of people when they feel awe feel like they have a transcendent experience. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I now know something that's fundamentally true and I am part of the universe and, and I, I've encountered the spiritual forces. And then how do you measure that? You know, and you, mm-hmm. you give them self-report items like, is what you've learned fundamentally true? <laughs> and I have, I'm skeptical of those. So, so there are, you know, I think we, we've gotten halfway to understanding the phenomenon, but, you know, and we can get awe in the lab and outside it. Um, but, you know, really understanding what it does for us is going to take some work. But it's interesting. You mentioned earlier dispositional awe and this, uh, and yeah. the zoologist and, uh, I'm, I'm mostly thinking of all as a state, as or like in a given situation. But then, then I'm thinking like, if I sort of all well, dispositional awe is probably like if mm-hmm. you see it 
more if you feel that more often you experience it more often some people are maybe more prone to that but is there some kind of a, a distribution after which you just don't feel it anymore <laughs> I mean, it's like kind of very cynical me right now yeah. saying that but you know like you, it's just like you've been seeking it out you travel the world and right. uh, and then at some point it just stops being effective what do we know yeah about that? i you know mm-hmm. that's a an intuition and a concern and it's actually a concern of like man maybe i shouldn't even write about art or talk about it because it'll, <laughs> right. it'll destroy the <laughs> emotion around, yeah yeah root it out in actuality you know, in our all walk study, people did this all walk mm-hmm. once a week for eight weeks. Same instructions, off they go. They do the all walk. They know they're doing it. It's almost like take any of the eight wonders and and try to feel awe once a week with them, like a piece of music or sort of being in nature. And what we found, Igor, is they actually felt more awe incrementally over the eight weeks. So that tells us, wow, if I try this new exercise, it increases. And, and that's about all we know, you know, and obviously if you feel awe at the, the taste of, of this curry, uh, if you eat, you know, nine dishes of it, you're not going to feel awe anymore. You're going to get worn out. Um, but you know, one literature that's really interesting, and I wonder if this makes contact with wisdom is where if you're to really study aficionados, you know, and when I'm around people who really know a lot about a, a domain, mm-hmm. They tell me, like, man, the more I learn about mm-hmm. baseball statistics or baking bread or Chopin, right, the more they're awestruck, the more awestruck they are with mm-hmm. each experience because it just gets richer. So, but mm-hmm. we don't know. And and uh, what would you predict? Oh, well, I I think we need probably different methods to start yeah. studying and trying right? to like really do this kind of capturing people every day in their experiences and then see. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, so for me, it's hard to say uh, without uh, seeing this type of data, which is really hard to get because you essentially you have to capture people for a very long period of time. Yep. And it's not like that if we have the potential to probably experience all every day, but not everybody does. Yeah, especially if you're an office worker or something like that. Um, so that's why. The other thing is, I'm, I'm just. I think. What do you think about this? Is this is awe? Um, why are we thinking about it as sort of like through this kind of particularist lens? Yeah. Because, for yeah. instance, you mentioned mindfulness. You mentioned yeah. some of the other features. Why is it not a system? Yeah. And that's, a, that, that's, I find it's an interesting question. So for instance, uh, yeah, awe is often corresponding to being mindful of your environment. And yeah. uh, maybe instead of striving to cut out and say, well, this is this, but this uh, not that, and this is this, but not that, we may yeah. be better off capturing yeah. it all as a dynamic system and then trying yeah. to see under what circumstances those things align and under what circumstances they don't. Yeah, I, yeah. I think there are two really important messages that, in your comment, and I agree. Yeah, um, and and the first is, you know, we use a word like awe, and oh, it's different from horror, and then okay, they're all discrete and different. Um, but you're right; there there are really these broader systems of emotion that 
we move through in our day and our experience. Right. And, you know, I'd really direct the reader to, or the listener to Alan Cowan's work, alancowan.com. Like awe is in mm -hmm. this space of emotions of admiration and love and beauty and absorption and interest. And we move through that, those, that broader system of emotions fluctuating and mixing. And it's so much more complicated than just saying, well, oh, I feel awe. And I'd encourage the listener to check out alancowan.com just to see the data on that. And then the second is even harder. And, you know, which is we feel these emotions collectively, you know, and, and we study them as individuals. And so we right. are parts of these, you know, I, um, I got to go to this opera uh, over the weekend. I'm not a opera fan, but I saw all these opera fans and you could just feel the awe and the, ecstasy and the, the poignancy and you knew it emerged in that system of people and it carried on over time when they left and had ripple effects uh, so we need to start studying that and that is a new kind of science as you know so uh, you're with your interest in culture so yeah I think that's for a next frontier of all science and a wonderful one to dig into that sounds like it's going to be complicated uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing how that, that works out from you guys um, yeah um, <laughs> Um, my question was actually kind of about the cultural side of things as well. So you talk about um, all being a universal emotion, but um, it does sort of, um, it seems to be experienced differently and expressed differently in different cultures, different, you know, points in history. So yeah. how do you reconcile that, that sort of, on the one hand, it's universal. On the other hand, it looks very different uh, in different places and, and spaces and times. Yeah. You know, this is the time honored question of, you know, what chunks of this are, you know, hominid and mammalian and evolved and what chunks are cultural. And, mm. uh, you know, there, there are new statistical approaches to, to looking at that. Um, you know, you can look at within group variation and between group variation, you know, as uh, efforts to understand what's evolved and what's cultural. Um, interestingly, you know, unpublished work, but we find, but soon to be submitted, you know, 60 to 70% of our bodily sensations of awe are shared across cultures. Mm. Um, you know, you, we published a paper in Nature on the universality of the facial expression, and there, 144 cultures, uh, you know, the overlap was 78% in the expression of awe or something. So there are deep universals to awe, and then there's wild variation. You know, one of the most important ones is what we've been talking about, raised by Igor's question of, some cultures find awe more horrifying, you know, and terrifying. And other cultures, you know, like the U.S., less terror and horror. And, and what it comes out of is sort of the cultural values and social structures mm. of those cultures. And if you are raised in a hierarchical culture that's religiously hierarchical and mm. economically hierarchical, your feeling of awe feels more threatening. I was, I was just thinking, you know, you're talking earlier about the pandemic, um, yeah. and how, you know, the role or could play uh, in, in helping people through that. It reminded me of a, and I don't know whether this is true, but I remember he, where I don't know if either of you heard this, uh, during the pandemic that viewing figures for like planet earth and stuff were really peaking. So like people yeah. were at home trapped in their boxes and they were reaching for these grand majestic, visuals about nature and the beauty of earth and it's like oh they're just like seeking out awe in this time of um peril so that's kind of interesting right 
Very much so. And, you know, I've also heard Spotify reached out that people were listening to music differently during the pandemic. They were kind of, and this prompted me to think about how to treat music as a contemplative process. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they're listening to music to make them feel connected to home or their identity Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to like, oh, I just want to relax or hear the Mm -hmm. latest thing. So, yeah, I think one of the, you know, people use hiking trails to record degrees during the pandemic. Mm. Um, so in some sense, what it was, was a return to awe that we should be sustaining. Mm. Fascinating. So could have been escapism for the... <laughs> You're such a skeptic, you are. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we love him for it. What's wrong with escapism? <laughs> nothing, nothing. Why, I'm just why saying call that... it escapism? Uh, well, I'm, I was talking about the uh, the point that Charles was making about Google Earth. So if you're stuck at home, yeah. I mean, you know, the experience you may have had during the pandemic is very different from what I had in the in Toronto, where we had two yeah. lockdowns. Uh, I, one know. And a half years. I know. Okay, but I do want to talk about some negative stuff, and this sure. is one thing that we did not discuss yet. And I'm wondering, and I don't think it's covered as much in the book. Yeah, and yet it is part of the picture, and it is. Yeah. Um, how do you account for the negative or harmful aspects of awe that may be, uh, that may exist, for instance, such as um, awe-induced aggression or yeah. conformity yeah. Uh, or awe-induced exploitations? For instance, you talked about uh, collective effervescence and, you know, when um, when people wrote about that, that was before the Second World War. Yeah. When, uh, you know, even you think of the Nuremberg Stadium with Hitler at the podium there, that is, of course, in some ways, awe-inspiring, and yet has then those profound negative consequences. So what are your thoughts yeah. on this? Yeah, you know, um, I uh, I think that's one of the most exciting areas of inquiry. And there are all kinds of uh, exploitations and abuse of awe that I think the field will turn to. There are the, um, the, you know, the commodifications of awe, how we turn awe into, you know, uh, a corporate experience or a materialistic experience or, you know, or, or, or culture leads us to believe that awe is found in the beauty of a sports car or whatever. When I think that really is is false. So there are misuses in that regard. There are misuses and abuses in terms of power. And that to me is an empirical question. Like do authoritarian, uh, you know, coercive leaders like Hitler book more, you know, Hitler was such a historical figure in some sense, but, but is it more, is this true more broadly that these charismatic coercive leaders at, in universities or do they use law to control and that becomes problematic. I'm really worried about psychedelics, you know, spirit medicine, right. that the whole movement, it is about awe, as David yes. Eden and others have argued. It is uh, taking resources from indigenous peoples, like Dr. Yuri Salidwin has published in Lancet. And that's exploitation. That is using awe to make a ton of money, billions of dollars, uh, to exploit resources. Yeah. Um, you know, I think they're really interesting this one's mixed, you know, Pier Carlo Valdesolo, awe leads us to see patterns that don't exist. We have data showing awe makes us more rigorous in our analytical thought, as does Lonnie Shioda. 
So there's an interesting question. Does all this, all these conspiracy theories that are so exciting, you know, I remember first hmm. hearing about the CIA killed JFK and I was like, oh, yeah. my life has changed. You know, I felt <laughs> yeah, awful. Right. Um, so are we, are we distorting our reasoning? So, you know, Igor, I love John Haidt's thinking, which is like, we have these moral passions. They do a lot of good mm-hmm. in their own experience, but then we need broader social discourse. We need wisdom. <laughs> right. <laughs> we need people to be talking and, and debating. Reflecting, a, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then you, and then you figure it out. So wisdom, again, your two pillars help us answer that question. Well, that's beautifully said. I think we discussed a lot on the podcast. Um, at this moment, I just want to ask you, Dr., if you have any additional things that you want to share with our listeners. Well, um, yeah, you know, I, th- I think Charles's question, um, you know, I think we're going to learn a lot in the scholarship of awe across different disciplines. But, you know, partially, um, I think what the book it's, it has struck a chord where it's like, oh, I didn't think about mm-hmm. awe being part of my work. And I'd really challenged in my life, right? And I would just orient people to be thinking like that. You know, I've had anesthesiologists like, hey, awe is part of medicine. I have a person teaching in prison who's like, I can teach this to prisoners. Um, people in the arts, like, how do I design museum spaces with more awe? We're, we've built at the Greater Good Science Center a course in awe for teachers, you know, for educators. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think, you know, Charles's question is in the spirit of pragmatism, which is like, let's, let's, let's watch out for the abuses, you know, mm-hmm. the Trump rallies, et cetera, and let's put it to good uses. And um, I look forward to seeing where that goes. Daka, thank you so much for being again on our show and for sharing your wisdom about wisdom and about awe.